to this day, there's not many things that wake me up in the middle of the night because um, emotionally and spiritually I've come such a long way and talking about my past has been really therapeutic for me. But the only thing I can't get through um, and shake the nightmares away completely is the strip searching. Um, it's something that will, it will haunt me for the rest of my life. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning, and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes, and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. We don't talk much about them. We warn our children about them and we rarely seek to learn from them. And yet incarceration is on the rise. I recently went back through Australian prison statistics and was shocked to learn that we now lock up a greater share of our population than at any other time in the past century. My guest today is Lana Sanders. Lana is the Chief Executive Officer of the Women in Prison Advocacy Network, or WIPN. She's straight talking, energetic and thoughtful. Lana's journey through addiction, the time behind bars, and the way she uses that experience today to help others are the subject of our conversation. Hi, Andrew. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your story, uh, how you're, you were brought up and, uh, and how you managed to, uh, to, to find your way to uh, uh, a place where well, I guess an Austra increasingly large share of Australians have been, but, but, but uh, uh, to, by, behind bars to, uh, to, to a situation where you never expected to be. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's an understatement, really. It was the last place on earth that I ever expected to end up in my lifetime. Um, and I guess, you know, there was highs and lows in the lead-up to it, but if we're, if we're starting at, you know, childhood, um, birth to childhood to adolescence... Um, people would have laughed if, if a psychic had said to them, Lana Sanders is going to grow up and end up um, not only behind bars at, at one point, but addicted to a very, very hard drug. Um, people would have laughed and said, you've got to be kidding. Um, and it's not because I was better than anyone else. It's because I didn't meet the stereotypes that we have in our head when we think of a man or a woman who goes to prison. Um, I had a great childhood, um, almost too good. Um, I think I thought many of the things that I was afforded were my rights um, and now as a woman I know they were actually privileges. Um, my parents were loving, stayed married, I had a brother, we had a great relationship, happy family home, sports, private schools, um, you know, education was valued in my home and, you know, I often, I often say, and this is in no way, shape or form, blaming anybody um, for the choices that I made, but just to emphasise the type of home that I grew up in and the fact that substance, substance use, um, let alone substance abuse, was so foreign to us. My mother, I recall my mother numerous times, I can't tell you how many times, every time there was a family crisis or, um, you know, even just a minor, normally financially related problem and she'd be discussing it with my dad and she'd say, look, Terry, please, you know, you know, we've got, we should be happy. The kids could be on heroin, you know. <laughs> and it was, you know, it just, it didn't phase me. It went in one ear and out the other to me. But that was her only rationale constantly of saying life is great, we're mm. very blessed. Mm. And it wasn't that she was judging people who were on drugs, but she knew it was out there, um, disconnected to our family home, but hey, it could be us. And that was her way of saying life is great. Um, so I grew up in a home where 
it was it was very taboo. You don't go near drugs. I I distinctly remember um, when the King's Cross Supervised Injecting Centre. You know, it was big controversy in the lead up to its opening, and I remember the family dinner conversation about my father, who was a you know listened to talkback radio, he was a truck driver, um, and he was saying, "Oh, it's disgusting. They're condoning drug use." You know, the kids are going to grow up thinking it's okay to do that. And I was a teenager by this stage and I hadn't dabbled in drugs yet. Mm. Um, but it was constant, that that constant delivery of do not go there. That is the worst thing you could do in this household. Um, and I guess whether it be due to you're born with a certain personality or not, I think it lured me in. Um the constant do not go there, that would be the worst thing in the world. I was just so damn curious as to why. Why is this drawing in so many people and why are my nerdy parents resisting it so much? And I think the rebellious side of me just thought, you know, I'll be okay. And I also think, you know, um, you know, by the time I got a little bit older and I had st- started hanging around and associating with people who, you know, my parents wouldn't have approved of if they had have known. Mm. Um, but I was still really engaged in school, did very well, um, got into uni, did very well. And it was towards my last years of uni. So I was about 20, 21. Um, and I'd already recreationally started using drugs many years before that, um, as many young people do. Um, so we're talking cocaine on a weekend. Um, and I just thought, well... I'm still functioning. I'm still overachieving. People are talking about how great I am. Drugs are not that bad. Um, so it was just one drug after the other until eventually I got to the godfather of them all um, and thought, okay, I'll give that a go. Um, and I will be the only person that tries heroin once and once only because I'm smarter than everybody else. And I just feel so stupid even admitting that. But that was my mindset. Um, you know, I'm not your typical, and I hate, I, I call it the J word, I hate the word junkie and I don't like when people say it. But back then, I have to admit, I was constantly telling myself that I'm not a junkie. Nobody looks at me and thinks that, so I mm. can do what mm. I want. Um, and it didn't take long for me to become that awful image that I thought that I would never become. Um now, I still managed just to graduate, only just. Um, and then there was no routine, there was no schedule and I just dove into a torturous battle um, which was no longer fun. It actually wasn't fun after about a week or two. That was gone. Um, and it was just survival instinct, which I didn't have because, as I said, my upbringing was quite easy um, and I... I didn't, you know, I had all the the um, textbook intelligence in the world, but I wasn't street smart at all. Um, so it was really, really difficult for me. Um, and it was a matter of, you know, people, and I, I say it to myself all the time, why did I not just see that and stop before it got to that point? But there is something extremely enticing about that drug. Um, and... You know, not only does it mentally draw you back over and over again and you will tell yourself this is the last time and you will mean it. It's never the last time. Um, and then the physical, the physical pain of your body fiending for this drug once it starts to leave your body and that does not take long once you build your tolerance up. Um, I, I still fail. You know, I, I do a lot of writing. Um, I'm quite creative. I'm... You know, I, I do pretty well at articulating most things, but to this day I haven't been able to adequately articulate what coming off heroin feels like. Uh, that, that said, do your best to paint me a picture. What, 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 hurt, what hurts when you're, when you're coming off heroin? Well, it's 100% constant mental torture, but that aside, um, just to isolate it to a physical description... Um, hour by hour becomes increasingly worse. Um, so if you've just ever had an extremely bad fever, high fever to the point of you need to be hospitalised, 
and you're shaking and you're sweating and you're cold and you're hot at the very same time and you're vomiting and you're on the toilet at the very same time. So we're talking gastro fever. We're talking a lot of <laughs> a lot of um, ailments all at once, simultaneous to each other. Um, your your bones and your body just feel like um, they're just about to collapse. Like I always got to the point, and I was a very um, thin girl. I always got to the point of I just could not walk. I did not have the strength. I would crawl to the phone. Um, and, you know, that that's about, you know, eight or nine hours into the withdrawal. Um, and I guess the one thing that I always say, and my mother was extremely shocked to hear this, because we don't talk about my addiction and those years very often now, um, but after I gave birth to my son about four years ago, um, you know, it was, it was all done and my mother was beside me through the whole, you know, torture of labour and she just said, see, you know, what did I tell you? Tell me, how bad was that? And um, maybe it's just because I was so drained and I didn't filter what I was saying. Um, I just said to her, yeah, mum, it was pretty bad. Um, and I had no epidural, by the way, totally natural labour. And I said to her, mum, you know all those years when I would withdraw off heroin? Labour is a walk in the park compared to that. Um, and I suppose wow. that's the only way I can – and I know you're a man and you've never given birth, but, you know, you do hear about how painful it is and you may have witnessed it yourself. Indeed, and as yep. it happens, this is the <laughs> second time the pain of childbirth has come up on the Good Life podcast. Oh, so, there you, you know, go. There you have it. we just need to have an entire episode devoted to it at some stage. <laughs> Maybe you should change the name. Good Life is not so relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so what happened then? How did you go about uh, trying to to get the money to pay for the heroin you needed to keep the pain at bay? Yeah, look, in the early years, um, I probably no, not years, but probably for the first year, whilst I was still a university student, and a little bit of time after that, I used to use heroin alone. So the people that I started using it with, I actually flicked them pretty quickly. Um, I still had, you know, my mind ticking that they're not real friends. Um, so I was actually an isolated heroin user and I liked it that way. Um, I actually liked to be by myself and I've always liked to be like that. Um, so for the first year or so, if I didn't have the money, um, you know, and there was a lot of borrowing going on and my parents didn't know about the addiction by this stage and, you know, by, by no means they're not, you know, rolling in cash but they had money if and when I'd asked for it. But on the occasions where I just had no money, I would actually go through the withdrawal. Um, it never really occurred to me to take money that wasn't mine. Um, and I think that just stems to that, to that root of what I was saying of I had a stereotype in my head of what a heroin addict does. Mm. And I had boundaries which I really, really wanted to stick to. Despite crossing over... Um, I didn't want to completely cross over to, to become somebody that I didn't want to become. So I would just be sick, really, really, really sick. Um, and then probably after about a year of being on heroin, I crossed paths with somebody who I became quite close to who was also a heroin user. Um, now, this person was older than me, um, had been using heroin much, much longer than me. Um, he had started at 13 or 14 and he was 30 by this stage. Um, so his good years of I'm using drugs but I'm going to be sick when I don't have money, they expired many, many years before that. Um, so I'm not – I would never, ever um, put the blame on him or anybody else. I don't even blame the person who first gave me heroin. That was my choice. I was a grown woman and it was also my choice to cross paths with this man um, and engage in the type of behaviour that was just second nature to him. And it was probably about one or two incidents of me doing nothing but just observing, feeling sick for an hour, he would leave the house and he would come back with a lot of money. And... I think that I was at a point in my addiction where I didn't even consider who were the victims in that last hour and how did he come back with that. I was more swept away by, wow, how seemingly easy was that. Mm. Um, he's walked in with absolutely no guilt 
Um, and I've got a smile on my face because I'm about to get rid of this awful pain that I'm enduring. Um, and I just, I joined him. I joined him in that behaviour. Um, you know, I I have a pretty long rap sheet if you will look at the you know just the black and white paper version of it and I always hate doing a criminal record check because it seems so much worse than you know what I really was um everything on paper always looks worse you know there there are 64 charges um in the matter of about six to eight months um however every charge is listed separately so one incident could be 12 charges for example Mm. um and they were all of the category of larceny, but in, you know, larceny to be less than $2,000, which is what we call petty theft. They were my charges. Um, My co-offender was a little bit more severe than that and obviously his history was longer than mine. We weren't dealt with in the same way. Um, But the first time that we were arrested, and I have to be honest, there were close calls and you know, dodged a few bullets and got very close to being arrested prior to the first time the handcuffs were put on me and it still didn't deter me. It almost added to the adrenaline rush Mm. of of the whole journey. Um, Once again, I'm not who people say and I got away with something. Um, And then the very first time that we got arrested and I think this this gets to the point of when you start to feel invincible and when you start to think um, I'm untouchable, and no one, can, no one will ever get me and I'm above the law and I was of that mindset um, and I'm absolutely not proud of that. Um, we were just so, just so careless, you know, toward, towards the end of it all. Uh, I think, you know, we went back to the same shopping centre where just a few days before we'd caused big scenes and ran out. And went back to the same shopping centre only because it was convenient. We were feeling sick and we didn't want to go further. Um, and in hindsight, I'm really glad that happened um, because it's not a life that I I could have dealt with very well. Um, it was very traumatic for me. And I know that sounds very selfish because obviously it was traumatic for the victims of the handbags that I stole and the wallets that I ran away with. The trauma for them, you know, you will never be able to justify that. Not taking away from that. However, simultaneous to that, I was traumatised by the whole experience. Um, Heroin is supposed to put you to sleep and I was not sleeping, thinking about what I did that day just to feel better. Um, So I'm really glad we got caught. Um, And when we did, it was in a shopping centre and my... um, um, ..the co-offender that I was with, he, he saw the police running towards us... And he called out to me um, because we were a few metres away from each other and he said, run, you run. They only really want me. Um, And I'd never been in trouble with the law um, and I I just stopped and I just – my instinct told me, yes, listen to him and run. Um, But I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. Um, And I think that – you know, I've never really been able to work out why, but I do know for all that I have been, I am a loyal person. Um, and I'm also a person that any police officer would tell you this. She was always the one to put her hand up and say, I did it. You don't have to interview me. I'm pleading guilty. I'll tell you everything you need to know. Right. Um, it's just in my nature to be like that. I think the, the battle becomes so much harder when you make it so much more complex than that. Um So I stopped and we were arrested and I was granted bail at the police station. Um, I was granted bail and sitting in that holding cell for four hours um, and being being searched and and all the rest of it and and feeling, you know, obviously the withdrawal as well by that stage. Um, For all that that did to me, I left that police station and I went and used heroin again because obviously four hours in a police holding cell... And all the warnings in the world do not rehabilitate the soul. Mm. Um, So I was released and I continued to do what I had been doing. And this continued for probably another maybe five weeks tops um, until I was arrested again, which meant that I'd breached bail. And um, I was sent to holding cells on a weekend. 
And I was in those holding cells and I was, you know, waiting. I was about with about 15, 15 other women in a holding cell, all waiting to be called on video link to to be heard by the weekend judge to say whether we're going to get granted bail or not. And I was last. I was towards the end of the day and I mm. was really, really, really sick. Um, and every woman that left didn't come back. And, you know, back to that mentality of, but I'm different. Um, I just thought, oh, isn't that a shame? I just, it was really ridiculous, but I just kept thinking, that girl left for that video link and she didn't come back. Oh, she must be in jail. Um, oh, that's not going to happen to me. That's not going to happen to me. And about 15 women later, it did happen to me. Um, the court was not happy with my behaviour whilst on bail and they had every right to be not happy. Um, and I was denied bail. And my whole world just just crumbled. Nothing mattered anymore. I don't even think the pain of the withdrawal mattered that much anymore. Um, the fear that consumed me um, and the, the images in my head of what is this jail going to look like? What's the building going to look like? <sighs> Will the officers bash me? Um, what do the other inmates look like? Um, you know, I'd only have ever heard a few tales about a male prison from the co-offender that I was associating with. Um, and I just, I actually envisioned a female prison to be a lot worse. Um, just that nature of, there's no sense of, you know, men have brotherhood, um, which is what I heard about male prisons. Um, and I just kept thinking, women are bitches and they're going to eat me alive. Um, nonetheless, it was late at night when I arrived at Silverwater. Um, by the time that I arrived at Silverwater, um, I was on the truck and um, it's it's really, you know, um, like if you think of a butcher truck, you know, just full of cold meats, we all had our own little section so you're not sitting with other people. I didn't know who was to my left or right. Um, I tried to be as quiet as I could all the way from Penrith to Silverwater um, but I was very, very sick. And I had vomited all over myself. And because I was handcuffed, there was really not much I could do about it. There was no, you know, there was no room to move. It, it you know, it got all my clothes and my hair. Um, and then I remember when we pulled up at Silverwater, they opened the back of the truck and there was two officers standing there, one male, one female. Um, and it was the female that looked at me. And um, she said, well, I'm not touching her. And I'll, I'll just never forget what that did to me, you know, for all the disgust that I felt in myself and the shame that I was enduring by that point to have another woman look at me and say, I'm not touching her. Um, I just thought, wow, I, I have become an animal. Um, and I actually don't even talk about animals like that. Um, so that was a bit of a moment of who am I? Um, it wasn't about who is she and why did she say that. It was more just a realisation of the product that I'd become. So the male helped me. The male officer helped me, got me out of the truck. Um, and everything was just kind of like a step-by-step -step new revelation. Um, it, was, it was really like um, how, you, how you play a video game. You know, phase one, phase two, phase three, every phase got worse. Um, but I kind of just took each phase as it came. Mm. So, you know, get off that truck, just make your way inside. He almost carried me because I was just so sick by this point. Um, I wasn't a fighter. The officers knew that. So it was good in that way. Um, but the next phase of induction, um, being strip searched. You know, now I'd been strip searched before by police. Um but, you know, different story, absolutely different story, different process in prison. Um, I, I thought of myself as a really, really unwell young woman, um, mentally unwell and physically. Um, but when you are in prison and you get told to take your clothes off, bend over and cough, um, you're, not, you're not ill anymore, you're a criminal and you are just a criminal. So the whole, the whole game of, oh, but I'm just sick and I need help, that was gone there and then. I knew do not even 
try to entertain these people with that concept, they're not going to understand that. Um, to this day, there's not many things that wake me up in the middle of the night because um, emotionally and spiritually I've come such a long way and talking about my past has been really therapeutic for me but the only thing I can't get through um, and shake the nightmares away completely is the strip searching. Um, it's something that will, it will haunt me for the rest of my life. And I think as a first-timer, and I often advocate for this, um, you know, we need to review the strip searching process. 150% we need to review that for all women in prison. Um, however, I'm even more adamant that for a first-timer, for somebody who did not expect to go to prison and it is, you know, it's on the record that they have never been to prison, there's no need to strip search them. There was no point upon arrest being denied bail that I could have thought I'm going to insert drugs or a weapon. You know, that's not what your mind is thinking if you've never been to prison mm. before. Mm. It's not necessary um, and it's really detrimental and has long-term effects. Um, but nonetheless, I, c I continued on and I was okay, you've got no choice. I saw a nurse, um, which is you know, a mandatory process. I saw a nurse. I told her what my conditions were. They were undeniable. She was. She could see it anyway. Um, I asked if I could have some methadone because I was about four days into the withdrawal by that stage. I was denied methadone because I wasn't on a scripted program in the community. Um, I was told, you'll have to wait, you know, until you're in here for a while and you can see a doctor and get a script. Um, so I was offered a Panadol, um, I, I took the Panadol but I, I don't know what the point of that was. It didn't do anything. Um, and then I was told because you are a first-timer, you're an easy target. It was almost more feel, fear was instilled in me, you know, in the delivery of this. You're a really easy target in here. You're withdrawing. It's your first time. You don't look like everybody in here. Um, and I didn't even have an image in my head as to what everybody in there looked like. So she just scared scared me even more. Um and so she decided, she made the call that she was going to put me in what's called a dry cell, which is pretty much, um, you know, a suicide if you're at risk of suicide. And I, I told her over and over again, I had never been suicidal. Um, but she said, no, 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 it's for the best. We'll put you in dry cell. Um, now, a dry cell has absolutely nothing in it. So no sheets, no pillow, absolutely nothing because you could kill yourself with things that are in there. Um it has a, a toilet, you have your own toilet and shower, but everything is to be done. The lights are never to be turned off, 24 hours a day, bright lights, and that's because there's a camera in that cell, mm. um, which kind of just when I walked in there, and I thought, oh, this is great, I'll have my own room. Um, but when I walked in there and saw what this would be like, I just thought, oh, goodness, I need to be with another human being in one of those other cells that I walked past and had a look into. They look like... Um, cells but they didn't look like this and the lights were off because the girls were sleeping um and I asked if I could have the lights off because I often suffered from seizures when I was withdrawing and I was denied that um and they just said don't worry we watch those co cameras constantly if you start fitting we'll be here we'll be here to call an ambulance um but that actually had the reverse effect on me because once that door was slammed shut and everything is so loud in the wings of a prison um once the door was slammed shut, I kept thinking about what was said. Oh, don't worry, we watch these cameras constantly. Oh, don't worry, we watch these cameras constantly. And then I was just too scared to do anything. Um, you know, I'd just been strip searched, my first real prison strip search. Um, I just felt so, you know, just degraded from that and it was only about a half an hour before and then I just thought these burly men are just watching these cameras constantly. And the words just kept coming back to me. And I didn't know what to do. I, I just sat there. And there was, no, there was no chance of me sleeping because I was so sick. Um, and they wouldn't turn the lights off. So I just sat there from about midnight until, you know, 7am when I heard this, this buzzing sound. And it was just, um, I didn't even know what it meant. No one had inducted me. No one had explained anything. Um, the doors were just opened all of a sudden um, and that was it. That was my first day in prison and I kind of thought this is the time where, you know, don't 
don't go out there and sit alone. You've always been a loner. It's never done you any good. Um, just go out there and, and try to talk to people. My instinct told me talk to guards um, because I was so scared of who, you know, these inmates were. Mm. Um, and I think I had one conversation with a guard um, before I spoke to any other woman in prison and that didn't go too well. So, you know, whether they'd read my record or, or whatnot, but she knew a lot about me um, and because I'd answered a lot of questions upon the reception process and she she told me off. Um, she said to me to look around, look at all the women in here, can't you see how disadvantaged they are? You've got no idea what their upbringing was like. I hear you've got a university degree um, and I... I couldn't really work out any any correlation in what she was saying. Um, and I said to her, yeah, I do, that's right. And she went, well, you're just a spoiled brat. Um, you've had all the opportunities in the world and you wasted them. These women would die for the opportunities you had. And I, look, I know she was right, but at, at that moment in time, wasn't necessary. Um, I was off, obviously suffering from the same disease that these women were suffering and um, – I didn't have the energy or I think the courage to rebut what she was saying. If it was me now, I definitely would. Um, but this this is my point. Um, substance abuse does not discriminate. And although, you know, it might, it might linger in, you know, more types of communities than other types of communities, it does not discriminate. It is, it is the cancer of the, the social world that we live in. Um, and it doesn't matter if you've been afforded opportunities or not. Once you have crossed paths with heroin or ice, um, you, you're, you've been hit with a disease and you should be treated like everybody else. Um, so that really annoyed me. Um, so that, that was the moment where I thought, forget talking to the officers. Um, then They're not on my wavelength and they are just like the image I had in my head. Um, so I went out into the yard and everybody was drinking their morning coffee and having a cigarette. You could still smoke back then. And I was a smoker and I hadn't had a cigarette in about three or four days. Um, and I, I remember walking out into the yard and it was a beautiful sunny day and there were women around and they were laughing. People actually had a smile on their face and I hadn't seen that in a very, very long time. Like I'm talking even months before this in the community I hadn't smiled myself and I hadn't seen anyone else smile. Um, and I don't want to say that and portray a message that prison is fun, but what that did to me to see that these people who had been here for longer than me were okay and able to smile, um, that's what I needed to see. So I walked outside and I was – I remember being quite shocked um, at how many Aboriginal women there were. I think it was about half the women I was, I was, you know, standing before were Aboriginal and I was really, really shocked. Um, and, you know, when you know the stats and you're well-versed on the systemic culture of prison, yes, that wouldn't surprise you, but I wasn't well-versed. Um, and it really shocked me because you don't see that many Aboriginal people in the community. You know, you hardly ever do, really. Mm. Um, so what's going on? So um, I walked outside and before I could even approach anybody... Um, an older woman came up to me, you know, I was I was young, I was, you know, very early 20s and this woman was probably mid-30s, so she was older than me and she walked up to me and I'll never forget, she said, hey, Bob, you knew. And I said to her, yeah, I'm new um, and I was really honest with her and I just said, I'm really, I'm really scared. And she said, yeah, I can see that and you're sick, you're coming off it, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And she said, you on the buy-up system yet? The buy-up system is where you can actually start to put in an order and buy buy the things that you want, mostly tobacco, a pouch of tobacco back then. Um, and I said, no, I only got in last night and I'm, I'm not on anything. And she gave me her pouch of tobacco. Um, and the stories I'd heard from the male prison stories from the, the friend that I was associating with, that does not happen in prison. You know, tobacco is like gold. Um, and I was... I was really, I, I felt welcome. Like I felt, I felt that I belonged and I hadn't belonged anywhere mm. ever really. I was always different to everybody else. 
Um, and then I was always the outcast and then I was the rebel and then I was the criminal. And it was the first time I actually felt a sense of sisterhood um, and I could see it amongst the women. And, you know, as time went on, you know, as the day went on and the next day as well, I started to see some conflict and some things that weren't so great. Um, but, you know, you put a bunch of troubled, complex women in one space, there's, there's going – that's going to happen – um, but for the most part, I was overwhelmed with this sense of sisterhood and support, support that no one else had ever given me. And there were so many professionals in the lead up to this point of, you know, had the chance of intervening, um, had the chance of supporting me and didn't. Um, you know, the amount of legal aid solicitors, the amount of, um, you know, I mean, when you when you actually put, dip your feet into the criminal justice system – we're talking police officers, we're talking solicitors, we're talking magistrates, lots and lots of people who could have shown me support um, or who couldn't have maybe just said, you know, oh, it's great you got bail today. Hey, listen, don't touch that drug again. They didn't give me a how. You know, I walk away going, right, okay, that's that's what I'm doing. Don't touch that drug again. But how? I, I didn't have the answer at that point and no one offered one to me. Um, and I felt that the support of the women was foreign and it was so greatly appreciated and I have never seen any of those faces ever again. Um, but, you know, if I did, thank you is what I would want to say to them. Now, now, you were lucky in some sense because you were able to reapply for bail, which I understand right. isn't, isn't possible any, any longer. So you only spent, what, a, a handful of nights? In, yep, in that's the right. So three, three or four um, to this day, I don't, I don't remember exactly, um, but I do know I was afforded an opportunity, as everybody was back then, to reapply for bail. Um, that does not happen now. The New South Wales bail laws have changed primarily since 2014. Um, and so, of course, I, t I took that opportunity and I reapplied for bail and I was um, granted acceptance into the pilot of the merit program. So when it was first starting out... Um, and I think it was only available for about 20 to 30 people at that point. Very few women, mostly men. Um, however, I, I crossed paths via video link with a, with a magistrate who saw something in me and said prison is the last place for this young woman. It's going to ruin her even more. Um, she's not going to be eligible for rehabilitation because she's going to be on remand do you want to do a diversionary program? It's going to be hard work, but do you want to do it, Miss Sanders? Um, I think at that point it was a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, I just want my freedom back. I don't care what it takes. And so, of course, I put my hand up and said, yes, I will do everything. Um, but it was that program that, you know, um, I suppose in addition to, you know, a certain series of um, – other lucky moments, that program changed me. Now, I don't want to fast forward your story too quickly, but uh, just while we're on the end of your prison experience, how mm. does your experience in prison compare to, to those of some of the women you work with now at, at, at YPAM? Um, sadly, I must say, well, the, the experience of prison in itself has not changed. I, I work with women in prison now and I walk into the prison and I still see that sense of sisterhood and I still see that that um, that authority from the officers. And, you know, that has not changed. But the, the numbers in there, firstly, have changed dramatically. They're, it's overcrowded. There's more women in there than when I was in there. Um, it's pretty unheard of now for a woman to have her own cell. Well, it is unheard of. It does not happen. Um, but systemically... Um, as a result of those bail laws being tightened up um, and we've done our research and we know it's primarily because of the incident, the Lynn Cafe, the man was on parole and the bail laws and the whole parole system, everything was tighter, harsher and tighter. Um, but I don't see how women in prison, um, and we know primarily the nature of offences and the reasons for those offences are nothing like an act of terror, um, I don't see why women should be denied an opportunity for diversion as a result of something like that. So, and that's the difference that I'm seeing, and that's what pains me. Um, and I, it's not to sound like like a martyr. Don't get me wrong. 
really, really glad that I was released and I was given that chance. But it does pain me um, and I do walk away from the prison and I do shed a tear sometimes because I I might go and, and meet a woman and, and conduct an assessment and she tells me like a story that is the spitting image of mine um, and the crimes were the same and absolutely everything is almost the same and she was not granted bail to do a diversionary rehabilitative program which makes me realise that if I had have committed my crimes in a different era, I would have sat in Silverwater for 16 months because that's how long it took to sentence me. And I, I don't think that I would be sitting here um, with you doing this today had I enjoyed 16 months of Silverwater. Are there particular clients whose stories stick in your mind of people you've, you've worked with during your time at YPAM? Yeah, look, every, um, every woman has a million stories <laughs> per woman. Um, and I think it's more moments that stick with me. It's not one particular woman. Um, and it's a combination of great moments, um, really sad moments. Um, and I think the most powerful ones that remain with me, the longest and probably always will, are moments that mirror my past. Um, and when I, and that's normally the great ones. So when I walk beside a woman or our organisation facilitates a relationship to enable somebody else to walk beside that woman, but we've played a part in that, um, and you walk beside her and simultaneous to each other observe recovery happening before you, um, that, that's just, you know, you, you cannot describe that. Um, it's like, for me, it's a form of um, achieving what I've already achieved all over again every couple of weeks. And that's an amazing feeling. And the work that you do now seems to be, in some sense, part of, I don't want to say the therapy, but sort of making, making, making society better as a result of what, of what, you, what you've gone, gone through. I and mean, when we spoke earlier, you spoke about your connection with the, with the counsellor you had, but also the work at YPAN as being important in your journey. Absolutely. It was just layers, layers of um, um, coming through something. And I think the first step, the first great step was the counsellor that I, that I was appointed when I was on that merit program. Um, I, I felt in my gut that this woman was not going to judge me. I felt that she'd been there and done it and I didn't know exactly what it was, but I just got a feeling um, that she wasn't your average nine-to-five counsellor who wasn't coming from some type of grassroots approach. And it was very rare, especially back then. I mean, we have very few counsellors now who, who have lived experience. So once again, Lana got lucky. Um, and I, got, I had a connection with her to the point of I, I called her in between counselling sessions. Now, nobody does that when they're just playing the system. Um, I actually reached out to her voluntarily in between and she welcomed that. She embraced it. I have heard stories about counsellors in our industry who switch their phones off. Um, and she didn't do that. And, and Whippen, we at Whippen do not do that. And I think that connection that I had with her um, is – it's similar. Well, it's, it's identical to the connection that my clients now have with me. They, they sense that I can put it all out there with Lana and she will not judge me. Um, and the rapport that you build as a result of that um, is you, you cannot compare that to anything. Um, there's no amount of, of research or professional qualifications that can substitute the, um, the safe atmosphere and the comfortable setting that you're providing a client with. Um, so, yeah, it was as a result of that counsellor. And then I, you know, in that time of diversion, which was 16 months of that program, um, I got off I got off heroin and I didn't get off straight away and I was able to walk into my counselling sessions and say, I used yesterday um, and that's a result of the zero sense of judgement in the room. Um, and look, she wasn't happy about it but she appreciated my honesty and she knew that you do not recover overnight um, just because you sat in a cell for four days at Silverwater. She was willing to, you know, she put her cards on the table, we both did, and we said this is going to be a long, long, hard journey and it's going to take more courage than sitting in silver water. 
but we're going to do it and we're going to do it together. And we did. Um, and I, I did. I got clean. Um, I restored my relationship with my family all over again, which took a lot of hard work. Um, had I not had I been sitting in Silverwater, would I have been able to constantly approach my mother every day, sit with her and hold her and, and show her that I'm clean again today? Um, that would not have happened. Um, not to mention the trauma that would, you know, she would have endured by visiting me in prison. Um, it's just a ripple effect and it was so much better that I didn't have to do that for everybody in my life. Um, and I got better and I also went back and specialised my education to drug and alcohol counselling as well and my counsellor inspired me to do that. Um, and then I started working at Whippen, which was just another layer of I've done it. It's an accomplishment and it's therapeutic for me and it's not all about me. But if I don't look after myself, then I'm not going to be here to give back to the community. Um, so it is a matter of me going home and feeling like I have a purpose and like my past happened for a greater reason. So let me wrap up with a handful of standard questions that I've asked many of the guests on the, on, on the podcast. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, it's, it's funny you say this because I'm actually just managing a project right now to write letters to our teenage selves. Um, you know, oh, look, I'm not going to go with the corny, love yourself, be content with who you are. Mine's actually really practical um, and it's do not touch drugs. Just don't do it. There are other ways to achieve a rush and it is the worst thing that you could ever do. And that goes for absolutely any any category of drug? Absolutely any category. Absolutely any. Um, I know we are of a culture that, you know, we, we socially drink and I actually do have a wine every now and then. I'm not a drinker though and I never have been. Um, but illicit substances, do not touch them. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, that being in a country like Australia means that you will always be protected and that you will always have your rights. They will never be abused or breached because it's a first world country and it's fantastic. Um, and I came to realise in the last decade, particularly in my line of work now, rights are breached all the time. When are you most happy? When I'm with my people who love me. Um, my, my partner, um, my son, my son. Um, it doesn't matter what happens. I, I went through a death recently, just, just a few days ago, somebody passed away who meant a lot to me. Um, and I just pick my son up and I can't help but smile. It's just an instant thing. Even if my insides aren't happy, I smile um, and it makes my insides happy. So, yeah, definitely Nick. Your parents must feel the same way about you too after sort of feeling that they've, they've gotten a daughter back that they probably felt they'd lost for a while there. Absolutely, absolutely. Their daughter died six times. Six times I was pronounced dead and I came back to life. Um, and you know, for, for parents, and I know the love of a parent now because I am one, for them to know that um, and be called to hospitals all over, even Melbourne. My dad flew down to a hospital in Melbourne, um, you know, to have me not only physically healthy again but emotionally happy and, and passionate and making a change. Um, yeah, my parents are just on top of the world. What's the most, most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I think I have to repeat that answer and say that I just associate with my family. Um, family is everything. And I did, I, it took me a really, really long time to realise that there's nothing like blood. <laughs> Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, not really, to be honest with you. I'm such a nerd now. Like <laughs> for all the terrible things that I did, um, I've really I, I struggle to to do the wrong thing right now. Um, you packed all I, the guilty pleasures into the. the I the, just the stocked them into about two or three years, and I did so many of them. It's like I just ran out. I ran out of fuel. Um, 
I, I don't know. I think I, I watch the crime channel a lot, those, you know, cheesy, really over-dramatised <laughs> reenactments of crimes. But not Orange is the New Black. I remember you I, telling me you have a, <laughs> a personal beef against Orange is the New Black. Right? I do. No, that's – yeah, don't, don't get me started. Don't get me started. I do watch Wentworth. That's um, as bad as it gets. Right. No, 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 no. Wentworth's different. <laughs> um, but no, no, I do hate Orange is the New Black. I'll put it out there. Sorry to offend a lot of people who like it. Which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Uh, my mum. In my what mom. way? Um, you know, for all, the, for all the many years that I, that I shut out the principles and the values that she instilled in me, um, I think they were – that's what got me through and what um, prevented me from – I did awful things but prevented me from doing um, – really, really horrific things. I think she instilled something in me from birth which just gave me this natural instinct of, okay, do that, but don't do that. And um, in my getting my getting clean period in the counselling, my mum was discussed more than anybody else, probably took up about 60% of our time and it was all in a positive way. Um, and it was reminding myself of the value she instilled in me that I forced myself to forget um, but it was bringing those back in a crash course of six to 12 months. You know, we're talking 18 years of values, bring them back again. And what's next for you? Oh, look, I used to say very early in recovery, a lot of people say you just take each day as it comes. Um, and I think that I have reached a point now where I'm so far into recovery. I don't say that anymore. I do like to think of the future. So it's not about just tomorrow. Um, it's about what I want for myself in five years and ten years. Um, and every time I think of myself, I think of this is how old I'll be, so this is how old my son will be. What do I want for us? Um, and that's kind of that's, – that's the rationale behind every decision I make. Lana Sanders, thanks for taking the chance to speak today about Bitter Life. Thank you so very much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast – Please rate us on iTunes. Next week, I speak with Dick Telford, AFL footballer, runner and elite coach, about extraordinary performance and about the role of exercise in a good life.